Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Fountain Blue in Florida, in Miami Beach. Uh, I remember when I first came to Miami Beach, it was about 47 years ago. I came here um, just because I happened to be near it. And I walked into the Holiday Inn and bumped into Billy Joel. And they had a band there. And we ended up playing. I was, it was the craziest thing. And that was my first experience in Miami Beach. And that was followed by, if you remember 1972, uh, and also 1968, it was... Conventions. Richard Nixon. A whole lot of people. But I, know. Uh, yeah, I remember that well. My father actually had the job of negotiating, back then he was a state attorney, with the hippies, yippies, zippies, and uh, all the different parties in Flamingo Park that were swimming naked. Uh, and if you remember, uh, sort of shocking our city, but it was, a, it was an amazing time. And not a... Not a, not in every town USA. I remember the police chief then. Rocky Palmer. Absolutely. Good guy. I know. Crazy time. What was the most memorable thing about the Republican convention here? You ready? Sammy Davis Jr. hugging Richard Nixon. <laughs> that was. <laughs> you know, it's uh, you know I always think of our city as having these um, moments that happen here. 
yeah. uh, and that are interesting. And I and for even our, when people come, just like your concert with Billy Joel, yeah. Yeah, we want to create a moment for somebody. When they leave, they remember it, hopefully fondly, hopefully so that they want to come back. Uh, and, and But those big events are the ones that really uh, create a brand. Now, we know a lot of the things that have changed in Miami Beach, obviously the Art Deco, all the hotels, uh, not just Collins, but the, the street behind it. Uh, but this hotel has got great history. Bonneblu is amazing. Um, as a kid, I would come here. I mean, I, look, I grew up here. I came here a little bit before you did. I came here 58 years ago. Um, well, you grew up here. Uh, via Mount Sinai yeah, Hospital. You were cheating. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's true. Um, you know, the Fontainebleau is a beautiful facility. Um, and, for a lo- and for a long time, it was sort of the, the heart. And it still is, I think, probably the biggest sort of uh, hospitality region. But we've also got these other areas now. Uh, you can go to Collins Park and the W and the Satai are this, you know, beautiful places. Then you can go down and so many other areas of our city have changed. Our city has changed dramatically uh, almost every decade. But the last decade has been, I think, uh, in my experience at least, the most interesting and I think the best. I mean, I, I said this earlier in the show uh, and to my friends. I mean, I first came here, I was six years old. My dad was coming to an American Medical Association convention. We were staying at the Fountain Blue. I was, I was just wide-eyed. I, and I'll never forget walking in. They had a jukebox here. And the jukebox was playing uh, Fats Domino and, and uh, Blueberry Hill. Right. And that was, uh, that was my first experience in, in the Fountain Blue. Yeah, the city, um, back then, I, I was an usher as in high school. I was an usher. You for, worked here? No, I, oh. I worked for a company that, had, that provided ushers everywhere around the beach. Oh. Andy Frayne Ushering. And, oh, I know. Okay, And I had, a, I had a blue hat and the whole outfit. I'd go to the, I'd come anywhere they needed ushers. I would get paid $2 an hour, whatever it is. Funerals, bar mitzvahs. Mostly professional wrestling at the <laughs> convention center. <laughs> Uh, or <laughs> boxing, uh, and I gorgeous always, George, was all he? of them, all of them. But I, I, when I open up Art Basel every year now, I always say, when I started, it was the the cultural fair of our city was boxing and professional wrestling. And now we have Art Basel in literally the same location. Of course, it's gone through a major, uh, beautiful uh, change. Absolutely, uh, but this hotel has gone through a big change. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's a beautiful facility. Uh, you walk around, you feel like uh, you go from one area to the other. You're in the ocean or you're in a, a garden or you're in one of their fine restaurants. But listen, this is what's happened in our city is that 20 years ago, and I, my law firms have always been outside of Miami Beach, you had to go to Carl Gables or somewhere else to get a good meal. Here, it's an embarrassment of riches. This hotel alone is an embarrassment of riches between its Japanese restaurant, its steak restaurant, its Italian restaurant. It's got uh, the best uh, chefs in the world are here, and not just here, but throughout the city. And it's, it's been great for our visitors, but also for our residents. So you, you're also working as an usher now? Um, I feel like it. Uh, I do feel a little bit like an usher uh, in the best of ways, because I get to go to all these places and cheer and, and sort of welcome people into the city. What's yeah. your biggest challenge? Because it's about managing growth, I would assume. Yeah, and it's also about trying to make sure it's thoughtful and that you navigate the concerns of your residents and the tens of millions of people who might show up here during the course of the year. We're a city that during a Wednesday night might be 90,000 people. On a Saturday night might be 400,000 people. Talking with the mayor, Dan Gelber, we were talking about challenges for you in terms of how do you manage growth? And, of course, the second challenge has to be, you know, the new buzzword, of course, climate change and sustainability. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the challenge of our communities is we're at ground level. We're at sea level. We're uh, porous with limestone. Water comes up. But we've actually been ahead of it. Uh, we've spent about half a billion dollars in street 
raising program. We've gotten rid of our gravitational system for stormwater. We're now pumped with, with literally pumped uh, uh, motors and engines. Um, and, and we've already seen that third parties have said so. We did a, a recent geo bond where we were spending about half a billion dollars just to improve our parks and our resiliency and our security. And the Standard & Poor's gave us a double A plus and said it was because of our resiliency. Our, storm, our, our windstorm rates just went down. Uh, our, I mean, our, our flood rates just went down uh, and, and saved us money. So we're, this is an entirely surmountable challenge for us, but we've got to spend the, the effort. But they, you just mentioned insurance. That's uh, near and dear to me because I had to suffer through San Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. We had the earthquake in California when I lost my house out there. We've And we've had the wildfires out there now. I mean, how do you fight against insurance rate hikes or insurance companies doing the right thing? Well, I mean, look, for us, because of all this resiliency, literally we got a better rating this year for our flood insurance than we've had. So think about that. Miami Beach, a city at, at sea level, that you hear about all the time, saving money because of its efforts. Just like you put storm uh, windows in your home to deal with a hurricane, when you take care of these measures, uh, the, ins the insurance world notices and the actuaries say you're a better risk and they give you a better rate. And that's what we've been doing. And I'm very proud of that because it's hard to convince people uh, that they need to spend the money uh, and there is disruption. Uh, but we're trying to do it right and I think we've been pretty good. The other challenge is how do you take this uh, city that is amazing and you know that has this crazy beautiful vistas beachfront everywhere bayfront and make sure that it is reaching its potential in a way that its residents can uh, can deal with i think the answer for us has been culture uh, we have uh, grown the arts community i told you earlier i was professional wrestling was the arts fair between art basel the new world symphony the miami city ballet um, the Colony Theater. All is, of there, is there professional wrestling still? Um, I don't know that it's there anymore. <laughs> okay. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's somewhere, but it, listen, I'd welcome it if it came, but, and, but uh, fortunately what we've been getting is really some very elevated uh, art and culture here, and that's attracted a kind of visitor and given our residents an amenity they love. Of course, the other challenge that every major city has that has all the attractions that you have is over-tourism. Right, right. Well, we, we have transportation challenges. When uh, During spring break, uh, during that St. Paddy's Day weekend every uh, year, we get over capacity. We had a literally closed on a causeway last year just because we couldn't take any more people into the city. Um, we have that issue now and again, but the way to deal with that is to try to, is to moderate what you have, organize it, and try to make sure you're not over scheduled. Um, that's the advantage of sort of these cultural things. Think about it. This year after Art Basel, uh, we're going to go to the Super Bowl. Uh, just a few months later. Next year, we're going to get the championship of the, the uh, foot, college football is here. We get these kinds of events, so we become pretty good at figuring out how to deal with them and arrange them. But on the other hand, you got to keep the residents happy, too. Well, I'm speaking to a Miami Beach native, so I have to ask the obvious question. Were you a spring breaker? The truth. <laughs> Where did I go? The truth. <laughs> Where could I have gone? It's like a <laughs> Bellman, Bellman holiday. Um, you know, I usually hosted people here, and I have two daughters in college in Michigan at Tufts, and they are and, and the advantage of living in this city, it's a destination. So I'm not worried about my kids moving away because they're always going to want to come here. And, and my kids come here every, every uh, vacation they can, usually with friends in tow. And so it's nice as a parent to know that uh, you can see them under, uh, in the house. Now, you've had an explosive growth in hotels, of course. You had an explosive growth in restaurants. Yeah. So as a native person here, where, you wanna, where do you want to take me for breakfast? Oh, for breakfast. Yeah. You know, Joe's has a pretty good breakfast. 
Joe's? Joe's has a pretty good I breakfast. I have never been to Joe's for breakfast. Our, um, uh, ro- roasters and toasters on, my, uh, on, on 41st Street is, is, is also a, a, a pretty good fare. Um, and there's a bunch of places that have come up around there. A lot of the hotels, uh, the Betsy has a good breakfast at its, uh, at its restaurant. By the way, speaking of Joe's, yeah. I'm convinced that every waiter there has a summer home in San Tropez. <laughs> the amount of money that changes hands at that restaurant is no, out of no, control. No. Uh, there's no gambling going on in Casablanca. I'm not talking. There's no gambling going on <laughs> yeah. in Casablanca. And, and let us remind <laughs> ourselves that the person who said that in the movie then collected his winnings from the night before. <laughs> All right, so that's breakfast. We're, and, and lunch? Uh, there's a lot of different lunch places. Joe's actually is really. Will you with. stop with this Joe's stuff? <laughs> I have, you know, the problem you have is when you ask me about my favorite restaurants, I immediately begin to worry that all the ones that I haven't mentioned uh, are gonna, and I go to regularly. I'll try to give you uh, as many as I can think of, uh, because by the way, it has become an embarrassment of riches. Uh, I, it's not a question of where you go for Italian; it's which Italian. We've all right, got, so okay, we're the lightning round. Three Italian places. I'm gonna give you more than three. Um, yeah. I'm not going to give you any one of them because they'll all kill me. Uh, Machiolina is great. Panavino is great. Uh, place on 41st Street. A cafe of Avanti's uh, amazing. Rossinella's where I bring my, uh, on Lincoln Road is great. And so I just have a message for you from the Italian restaurant. Oh, no, I'm dead. <laughs> you're, you're, you'll sleep with the fishes. It's yeah, over. Yeah. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This hotel has got such history. I first came here when I was six years old with my dad and my mom. He was here to attend. My dad was a doctor. He was here to attend the American Medical Association convention. And I'll never forget the look on my face. My eyes were wide open as I walked in, and they had a jukebox right off the lobby, and it was playing Fats Domino. I left. I, I, I had a thrill. I left my thrill on Blueberry Hill. Anyway. Uh, and the hotel has gone through so many different transformations since then, but the basic design is still the same, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But one of the things that distinguishes where we are is the number of museums, the number of art galleries, the number of places in the Art Deco District here in Miami Beach that you don't even know about. Um, And one of them happens to be the Wolfsonian FIU. Now, chances are most of you don't even know what FIU is, but we'll get to that in a second. But most of you, I guarantee you, don't know about the Wilsonian with 180,000 objects in there uh, between, the ages, between the years of 1850 and 1950. Talk about a collector. And the guy who collected it was a guy named Mickey Wilson. Joining me now, and but this is a cool place, joining me now, the director of the Wilsonian FIU Museum, Tim Rogers. How are you, sir? Very good. Thanks have for you, having have me. Have you counted all 180,000 objects? <laughs> Every day. No. Don't you lie to me. <laughs> but I mean... Most people, I mean, in the art world might know about it, but most visitors to Miami Beach probably don't. They need to be educated because it's right in their face. It's there. Exactly. Exactly. We're only about 25 years old, so we're a relatively new museum, and I think that many people have yet to discover us. But for those that have found us, I think we're extremely uh, popular and we're one of their favorites. We're a unique museum. What makes you unique? Well, one of the things that's really unusual about the Wolfsonian is that Mickey collected literally everything from the period that you just described. So basically, he he was a hoarder. Well, you could say that, but because he had money, he was a collector. Uh, 
Okay, keep going. And he's how old now? Uh, so he is turning 80 years old this year. Uh, is he still collecting? Oh, every day. Uh, he said it's a bad day if he doesn't buy something. So really every day he's out. Okay, tell me what he's been buying. Well, right now he is really focused on our library. We have a very significant research library of over 75,000 volumes, and it's growing all of the time. And Mickey is very focused on growing that collection of books. It's also... But do the books have a particular focus? Well, it's the time period, uh, certainly is the first So focus. 1850 to 1950. Yeah, exactly. The second focus would be that he often buys books based on their book covers and their illustrations. He buys them as objects. So as he judges the book text. by its cover. Exactly. Unbelievable. <laughs> wow. That was good. Go, hey, you set me up. All right, so there's the library. There's the library, and then, of course, there's the larger collection of all of the different objects that we hold. And because he doesn't really believe in this kind of arbitrary notion of quality, what's good, what's bad, what's the best, instead he believes that everything that humans have made is of value because humans made it. And if we take the time and energy to really understand those objects, we'll come to understanding of the people who made them. So if you looked at a little toy from the 1930s and how it was designed and how it actually, the, the mechanics of it, you understood the 1930s. Then. Exactly. And how children played, what it is that they favored in terms of kind of leisure activity and fun, all kinds of things you could pull from that one little object. Now, do you actually do a hard stop in 1950? No. So you, <laughs> <laughs> so basically I could find an Etch-A-Sketch in there? Uh, you, you might be able to stretch our time period a okay, little bit. Just a little bit, uh, okay. But I mean, I go back to my childhood, you know, when we talk about like slinkies and Etch-A-Sketches, you know, those are at that era. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But you're younger than Mickey. And so Mickey was really kind of looking back at his parents' lives and, of course, his life. And I think was very much focused on issues such as World War One and World War Two, which had an impact upon, you know, his parents. And so he's looking back as much as anything. Now, you've got your greatest hits. That's your next that's your next exhibit. Right. Exactly. Which is Mickey's favorites. Right. Um, so we call it a universe of things, and so what we're trying to <laughs> universe highlight... universe of things. <laughs> we needed a big name, yeah. um, and so we're trying to highlight those objects. Wait a second, why don't you just change favorites. the name of the museum to the Thing Place? Well, you know, that's already been taken. There's a Thing Museum in Germany. Come on. Yeah, yeah, um, and I'm not going to remember it in German. But It's okay, I got the Thing part. I got the Thing part. And you have a mascot. We do. We do. We have a favorite object of ours, uh, the wrestler, which is a six foot four aluminum wrestler, uh, more bronze than brain. Uh, he has a very small head and very large muscles. And Mickey found him where? Uh, that would be a good question. We'll have to ask Mickey that. I'm actually not certain. Mickey is looking all over the world all of the time. Now, it's one thing to say you've got the things, but you also the things were done in some cases by very well-known artists. Exactly. So we run the range from you know a postcard all the way up to some of the best futurist Italian paintings in the United States. We just loaned a number of our paintings to the Guggenheim, and they were in their futurist exhibition. And so Mickey collected what you would describe as high to low, um, and so that's what makes us unusual. So basically, he will go to places. I'll take one of those, three of those, and five of those. But he is discerning. It's surprising to go shopping with him. Uh, he doesn't just pick up anything. All right. Let uh, me give you an example. There's a museum in Boston called the Museum of Bad Art. Right. 
Okay, <laughs> how'd you like to be the curator of that and telling somebody that their piece couldn't come into the museum because it just wasn't bad enough? Yeah. Right. So let's let's flip that. And say, mm-hmm. is there something you won't exhibit? Is there something that Mickey got? You said, really, Mickey? No, no. I think that <laughs> that was a confident right. answer. <laughs> well, I, I was really trying to think of something disgusting, but I couldn't come up with anything that we wouldn't put on display because it follows Mickey's thinking. Uh-huh. And, the, and the cool thing about all of this, and in, in all seriousness, is that everything has a story, and it's your job to tell that story. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, as somebody who's been in the field for all of their career, I've spent a long time looking at basically a subset of objects, a very small group of objects, and telling the same story. If I had to explain Renoir's painting one more time to anybody, I was going to lose it. And so to come to a museum and to be able to talk about children's toys, to be able to talk about you know, obscene things, to talk about things that are never shown, this is fun. It's very cool. Yeah. Now I'm I have a good job. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you're I'm the a lucky th- guy. You're the thing guy. <laughs> you are the thing guy. If you are continuing like on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. And now segueing from that to something else about Miami Beach, the buzzword of all buzzwords these days, it's the buzzword of the United Nations, it's the buzzword probably in your kids' schools, It's the buzzword probably in the political cycle that we're in right now in terms of a campaign, sustainability. And joining me now, the Environment and Sustainability Director for the City of Miami Beach, Elizabeth Wheaton. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you for having me. So sustainability is a relatively new word in the lexicon, if you want to go back. I mean, it's been there for a while, but it hasn't always been well-defined. How do you define it? How do I define sustainability? Well, it's how do we protect the earth? while at the same time looking at energy. uh, uh, It's looking at cost savings, so how do we save money? Um, How do we protect the environment? And how do we do social good? So it's looking at the triple bottom line. And doing so, you know, look, there's a cost factor, as you say. There's a health factor. We're dealing with rising water levels. We're dealing with rising temperatures. Uh, All of those things combining, and especially here in Miami Beach, more and more weather issues. It's true. And our climate is changing and we are seeing it firsthand here in Miami Beach. Um, We call it sunny day flooding where we have actual the tides and the water coming up through the storm drains and flooding the streets. So in Miami Beach, with no storm, with no storm activity, no storm activity. This is on a sunny day and hence the name sunny day flooding. Uh, And so what we've done is we're taking on this first headstrong and we are can i ask a stupid question sure how do you take on flooding headstrong um it's looking at the the causes so we have uh rising tides coming up uh, so we're raising our seawalls we're actually raising the streets in the lowest lying neighborhoods so as the water's coming up through the ground because we do have a porous limestone we're raising the city so we're raising seawalls raising streets and sidewalks and then upgrading our stormwater infrastructure so we can handle those heavy rain events when we have them i mean this reminds me of the levees in new orleans i mean the same issues of of, of rising waters it's very similar we do look for ch- um solutions uh, by looking at the Netherlands, New Orleans, Well, the uh, Netherlands, you know, you mentioned the Netherlands. That's an amazing uh, model because they've been dealing with this since there's been the Netherlands. 
It's true. And in Miami Beach, we see this as our new reality, uh, but it also presents many opportunities to design a city to be thinking into the future. So give me an, an idea, necessity being the mother of invention, as you've designed something that you wouldn't have even thought about five years ago that is now something that's really cool that serves the purpose you want it to serve. Sure. So right now we're in the process of redesigning an old golf course, and we're designing it to hold and maintain water coming off the neighborhood. So it's the idea of how do we live with water. So it's water. a catchment. It's, 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 exactly. It, yeah. yeah, it's going to be catching that water. It's going to be slowing it down, treating it. So if there is any discharge, it's going to, the water quality will be better than what was there before. Wow. And how long is that going to take? How long is the project going to take? Yeah. Uh, it's going to, uh, in the next few years. So I would say in about three years, we'll have it done design and in construction. It reminds you of the story that, you know, you have to paint a bridge. And by the time you get to the end of painting the bridge, it's time to paint it again. That's assuming nothing changes. In a situation like this, by the time you finish that, will it be enough to handle what you may have to deal with a couple of years from now? So, you know... The city's always adapting and changing. And so every year we're updating what we're doing. We're looking at our capital improvement plan, making adjustments. Um, just like any city, there's always a growth period and you're always looking at what works, what doesn't work and making adjustments accordingly. Sea level rise is just another challenge and we are taking it and looking at it as an opportunity as we build our parks, as we upgrade our streets and sidewalks. Um, of course, somebody has to pay for it. It's true. Um, and so we have raised our stormwater utility rate to help pay for it. Um, so our taxpayers, seeing firsthand the water in the streets, have said, yes, we're willing to pay for this. We're willing to invest in our city so that we can continue into the future. What's your biggest challenge? What's our biggest challenge? Um, I mean, I would think it would be educating the population that they should support the, the bond issue or the tax issue so that they can actually finance this stuff. I would agree, yes. Uh, definitely, you know, uh, in educating um, our public of what's happening and what they're seeing, and also that there's not a silver bullet solution. Rather, it's change over time. Are you getting any support from the federal? Uh, we're getting some support from the federal government. Uh, the state um, has recently had, we, uh, elected a new governor, and he's hired a chief resiliency officer, and he's really um, taken a stronger leadership role than what we had before. And so, By the way, anybody who gets elected today should hire a chief resiliency officer just for their own job. It's, it's a yeah. great way to look at the challenges that we have. You know, our, we, Miami Beach has a chief resiliency officer, and her goal is, uh, her name is Susie Torriente, to bring together the different departments as well as working across the bridge, working with the city of Miami, Miami-Dade County, to look at this challenge from a larger approach. Because in the end, it's not just what we do here in Miami Beach. It's what we do with our partners it's, in the it, region. It's all interrelated. Exactly. You know, we mentioned water level. What about water quality? Yes. You know, we're very cognizant of water quality here. We are a tourism-based economy, and the health of the uh, Biscayne Bay as well as the Atlantic Ocean is, is paramount. So as we're designing our upgraded stormwater infrastructure, we're treating the water. We're building in green infrastructure, uh, looking at living shorelines, adding mangroves and landscaping in order to hold and treat that water before it's discharged into the environment. And then my favorite topic, MIA. I mean, you don't have an airport in Miami Beach, but the point is you're affected by the airport in Miami because that's your big gateway to the city. They have to deal with rising water levels. They have to, because there are lagoons out there. Mm -hmm. What are they doing? I don't know exactly what um, 
the airport's doing, but I know that as a region, uh, every agency is thinking about climate change and sea level rise as they're putting forth their planning. This is something that we're thinking about every day here in South Florida. And for somebody listening to this program who's coming down to Miami Beach, who wants to at least see the work that you're doing, can they do it? Yes. Uh, we actually just launched an app called MB Rising Above that you can download um, in the Apple Store or on your Android. And it provides a walking tour of different areas of Miami Beach where we've already raised roads. Um, there's also a fun activity if you want to take out a kayak and do a tour of Biscayne Bay. Now that's cool. It's super cool. It's uh, a great way to kind of see the city from a different different perspective. You know, in Paris, one of my favorite tours that nobody knows about, they actually have a tour of the sewers. Really? That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> so what you should do is do a tour of the Miami storm drains. I love it. I will add that to the list. <laughs> <laughs> because the biggest issue that you have here with storm drains, other than rising water levels, is an issue that we have in Los Angeles, we have it in New York, and that's plastics yes. and debris. It's, you know, the reduction of single-use plastics is definitely front and foremind. Uh, are, are you seeing an impact with that? Yeah, well, we launched our plastic-free Miami Beach campaign, uh, where we incentivize businesses to reduce and eliminate single-use plastics, and we've seen a huge reduction in straws, plastic bags, the takeout containers, and also just changing the culture of the residents and visitors that we have coming here. But so, has the city council legislated that yet? Um, what we can, we're preempted from... Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about, all from the comfort of your home? isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Really uh, passing a lot of legislation that we would like to, to, for example, ban plastic bags completely. Why can't you do it? Uh, the state doesn't allow us to, unfortunately. I would talk to the new resiliency officer for the governor on that. I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it's a no-brainer. Agreed. It's a no-brainer. We just talked to the guys at uh, Norwegian Cruise Lines. They just eliminated single-use plastic items, right? Mm -hmm. the, if you realize how many straws they were going through every day and how many plastic stirs, and then they're finally getting rid of the bottles, the plastic water bottles. It's a big deal. That's fantastic. I know. So your, your next stop, Elizabeth Wheaton, is going to be the resiliency officer for the governor to say, you said it on the air. Okay. Is that a deal? Deal. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest has been with this company just for a few years. I think it's 18. Uh, I've known him for a long time. He's the uh, president and chief operating officer of the hospitality division of Fountain Blue. But, I mean, this is a 1,600-room hotel. This is a small city. His name is Phil Goldhar. How are you, Phil? 
great. So glad, glad to have you here. Yeah, you know, when you think about scale, this you are the biggest hotel on the block. I mean, you, you, right? This is it. By far. We're larger than the next two largest hotels. So 1,600 rooms creates an interesting challenge for you in terms of how you support them, how you deliver the service, how you provide, how you innovate. 100%. So we kind of look at it. We have four room bu- buildings here, four room towers, as well as a fifth building that we built when we renovated it and reopened in 2008. So the extra building is our um, uh, spa and gym and Hakkasan's on the rooftop of that, our amazing Chinese, Mandarin Chinese restaurant. So we've got a little bit of everything here. And since you opened the hotel, I mean, because it's been here since 1954. Yeah. And I remember um, Sinatra shot a movie here. Oh, many. Actually, Sinatra lived here for numerous times during his career, shot numerous movies here, and was famous for being at the Blue Bar a lot and drinking Jack Daniels. Well, that was his drink. That's it. So I've got a photo here that'll show you him at the Blue Bar, and he used to have three fingers of Jack Daniels. So Jack Daniels has now come out with a product called Jack Daniels Sinatra Select. Of course they have. Which I brought you a bottle of just to take home with you. Oh, God. Don't do this to me. (laughs) Don't do this to me. But the bottom line is, uh, in those days, everybody showed up here who, uh, not just the Rat Pack, you had political candidates, you had presidents, and nothing's really changed. You know, since 1954 when it opened, they did a lot of motion pictures here. All the celebrities of the era of the 50s and 60s came here to hang out. And today, it hasn't changed at all. Jeff Sofer bought it, put a billion dollars into renovating it to bring it back to its original glamour and glory. And you could be in the lobby and see Floyd Mayweather staying here for you know weeks and weeks at a time, Shaquille O'Neal, the Hilton sisters, uh, Kardashian. So whenever you walk through our lobby, you're going to bump into okay, somebody. With all due respect, yes. if you told me the Hilton sisters or the Kardashians were here, I'm going down the beach. Okay. I'm, sorry. <laughs> that didn't get me on that. But the bottom line is if you take a look at the movies that were shot here, Scarface, come on. Yes, Scarface. The f- most famous one we did was Bodyguard, and yeah. the entire movie was uh, shot here. The um, soundtrack is one of the most famous movie soundtracks in history. They've done a number of events here since uh, she passed away, and the movie, you know, each anniversary of the movie, everybody comes back here, and we have a, a big function around it. You know, it's interesting. You'd almost want to name suites after famous lines from those movies, right? So you could have, a, like, say hello to my little friend suite. You could do that. with the, the No? Okay, fine. We could do it. Yeah, yeah you, and you should. You'd probably sell it out. <laughs> Listen, you know, if you, look, if you go to Colorado where they actually shot The Shining, you know, the Stephen King movie with right. Jack Nichols, here's Johnny. The room number that was in the movie... They, they have to change the rooms all the time because nobody else, they all want to stay in that room. Well, we do have a Sinatra suite here. It's where he lived when he stayed here very often and uh, shot some uh, movies. We actually have a Sinatra photo gallery downstairs in one of our spines where these two photographs in front of me are uh, examples of what's up there. Just amazing uh, history here. And it's authentic. You know, all, in all due respect to Las Vegas, they've got to make... Paris, Paris, and New York, and Bellagio. This is really Fountain Blue. It's an Art Deco, authentic hotel, and uh, we love the history. 
Plus, you've got all the great restaurants here now. That didn't used to be the case. That's very true. So when this was reopened, Jeff looked around the world, and we brought in Hakkasan from London at the time. Uh, There's now one in New York and other cities, but it's one of the great Chinese restaurants in the United States. We've got uh, Scott Conant's got Scarpetta here, amazing Italian, as uh, the mayor mentioned to you, one of his favorites. And uh, Michael Mina has a strip steak, which is also in Las Vegas. But you know what? What, what, what interests me, you got your own, you get, you get your own fishing boat. Yes, we do. You go you out and fish for your own stuff. Yes, we do. So it's called Blue, Blue Fish, and it's not a marketing uh, gimmick. It's a real commercial fishing vessel, and we go out. We mostly trap for uh, stone crab and then Florida lobster, and when we're not trapping, we line fish, and you get... What part of New York are you from? Long Island. Lobster. Yeah, lobster. Lobster. (laughs) Where in Long Island? Uh, The five towns, Hewlett. Oh, God. All right, yeah. You see, you haven't taken the Long Island out of your voice. I never have. I'm an identical twin, and everybody always makes fun of both of us. (laughs) Lobster. Lobster. Is that boat going out every day? It goes out most days, and as I said, when it's not trapping season, when they're out of season, stone crabs or the uh, Florida lobster, we are, we, we are, um, you know, line fishing, bringing in yellowtail snapper, grouper. So all that fish is kept live in our tanks downstairs. How, have, how big are those tanks? There, we have six 1,000-gallon saltwater tanks at different temperatures, so we bring in food from all over the world. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. You know, this is the first for me on this show, because whenever I do a travel piece, or I'm going to a different city or a different destination, they'll have somebody on who'd like to talk to me from the Convention and Visitors Bureau, or the Chamber of Commerce, or the, um, you know, just the tourist board, or the or the government tourist entity. Uh, Miami now uh, has the distinction of having a gay and lesbian Chamber of Commerce, which... When you think about it, it makes total sense. And uh, joining me now, the president and CEO, Stephen Atkins. How are you? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Stephen, when did this start? Well, you know, the chamber movement started about 40 years ago, but Miami Beach was... But 40 years ago, you were you were very low-key. We were very low-key, and most of the organizations were underground. So we had two... So much of a chamber. <laughs> not much of a chamber. Yeah, but it was a way to be safe. And yeah. so we had a couple of organizations that by 1999 decided enough is enough and merged to form the Miami-Dade Gay and Lesbian Chamber. And, you know, the whole idea is gay and lesbian friendly. It's, it's you know, I remember a book that was published, and you probably remember the authors. I've had them on my show. This goes back five or six years ago, or even longer. It was a lesbian couple that traveled the world together, and everywhere they went, they were greeted by the hotel saying, you, you do want single rooms, don't you? I mean, right, or like, are you together? It was, it was, it was really awkward. Right. It was awkward, and we spent a lot of capital to try to change minds and change perceptions, but uh, it still happens. Now, there are guidebooks out there that are gay and lesbian-friendly guidebooks, mm-hmm. or LGBTQ. I mean, all of that, right? Absolutely. Uh, but I would think at this point, it's sort of like 19% of the American public has a physical disability of some sort. It could be a mobility issue. It could be uh, a sight or hearing impairment. And they were ignored for so many years. And they're a potent 
uh, force of, 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 of money and revenue. So is the LGBTQ community, I mean, even bigger. Oh, even bigger. And I'll tell you, there are so many different minority groups across the United States. And I think looking at the diversity and inclusion movement as we look at each segment, if you bring them all together, that is the United States. So I think but pe- people perceive um, power behind monetary unit. You know, what is the capital that each one of these groups spends? And in the United States alone, the LGBT market is $1.4 trillion. Count and, me in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So how do you ignore that kind yeah. of base? And in Miami-Dade County... It's but they were ignored for so many years. A long time, because we weren't out. And I think that was part of the problem. We just kind of blended in, and it was very underground. And so the Chamber Movement is about that. It's trying to bring awareness to you know, what does that population represent from an economic perspective. Well, you know, most chambers, one of the things, or most convention and visitors bureaus, you know, what what is their main go- goal? Get the meetings and conventions to come in, right? You bet. And and you have a big segment of that. We do. And, uh, you know, just our national chamber, which has a conference every single year, the spend at that particular event is huge. And so every city in the United States... It's competing now. It's competing. One. And, and all of these LGBT groups are going to different cities, and they're being viewed... Alongside everybody, I mean, else. we've gotten beyond Providence, Rhode Island, you know, right, exactly, and and Key West maybe, and Palm Springs, and Palm Springs, and and if truth be told, uh, I spent every summer from the age of uh, six months old on Fire Island, and Fire Island is this is an interesting story. Fire Island is nineteen communities. It's thirty-two miles long, never gets more than a third of a mile wide. Uh, of the nineteen communities, two are <clears throat> gay and lesbian. Oh yeah, <clears throat> and and uh, so when I grew up. I grew up learning sexual preference tolerance at an early age because all of my family's friends were, they weren't called gay. Right. They were homosexual. Homosexuals, yes. Okay, but here's the interesting thing. And I've recently been married, but before I was married, this I mean, I used you guys to my advantage. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> because every woman who'd meet me would somehow do their homework and say, hmm, single, never married, collects art, Lives on Fire Island, gay. There you go. So you know what they thought I was? They thought I was safe. <laughs> <laughs> so you were the friend I, to go out on every day. I let them convert me. There you go. Sorry to take <laughs> I, I, I took one there. But, no, that's great. Well, but, Fire Island, I mean, that's the genesis of the, of the whole. But Fire Island was area. a, re- but listen, in yeah. the 50s, Fire Island was a refuge because it was the safe place in a, in a society that did not tolerate. This is way before, you know, Christopher Street and, and everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, and I wish we had more of that history. So people like you need to share this more often. People don't realize how far we've moved in such a short period of time. And so, you know, it it wasn't until the late 60s that homosexuality was still considered a mental health condition. It wasn't written out of the the laws until the 70s. Oh, listen, the American psychiatrists, they had textbooks on it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that's what I was saying. In the early 70s, it finally was overturned. And that's when some progress started to happen. And then sadly, in the 80s, when you look back at the AIDS crisis, if there was anything positive, if you could say this uh, at all, that came out of that, it did force most of the gays out of the closet. And it was the lesbians that helped the gays through that terrible, terrible time. But it was even one thing beyond that. And, uh, and I go back to the Rock Hudson situation mm-hmm. because all of a sudden, you know, matinee idols who everybody thought were straight 
mm-hmm. who touch them in a different way on screen, right. all of a sudden, boom. When that happened, it changed people's perception because it wasn't over there in a the distance anymore. Correct. It was right next door. Correct. I mean, all of a sudden, you knew someone who was gay. And, I, and that was the whole issue with um, the health and safety era during the AIDS, is that all of a sudden, these are our family members. These are our sons and our, our brothers that were coming down with this terrible disease. And it all of a sudden made people reconcile to the fact that this is a whole population that's part of our family. And so it really did change perceptions on how people viewed the community and certainly, I think, helped expedite some of the progress that we've made certainly in the last 20 years. What you had was a procession of accidental celebrity spokespeople. At, true. Absolutely. Yeah, That's exactly because, what happened. Because you couldn't hide it. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. I've always been amazed about how many people will go to a destination and never realize how many great museums there are. They never leave the resort. And if they do, it's basically to go maybe to the beach. Uh, but Miami Beach, speaking of beaches, has some great museums. And if you're looking for great contemporary art, you don't have to look further than the Bass Museum. And joining us now, the curator at the Bass, Leilani Lynch. How are you? Hello. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. I mean, now let's get down to just a definition of terms here because it's going to sound like a silly question, but I don't think it is. Define contemporary art to me. That's a great question. Um, contemporary art is always what's anchored to the right now so but I think for for our terms we can say everything as opposed to modern art modern I think everything post 1980 um, we can consider contemporary um, and generally working with living artists is is also another rule so if you die you're out of the museum <laughs> no no it's not a hard and fast rule but um, it seems to be the case so a couple of dead people live on <laughs> yes so def- defining contemporary art that way How local are you and how international are you? Uh, We're both local and international. Um, So we are Miami Beach's Contemporary Art Museum. We're across the street, literally from the beach. Um, So we're a great destination for for tourists and visitors. Um, You know, by the way, I'm assuming if you're across the street from the beach, you have to have a special humidification system in there because otherwise that salt air can kill it. We do, yes. We are are definitely not uh, spared from that, and so we keep... The insides of the museum are quite, uh, quite cool and dehumidified to keep everything safe. I got it. <laughs> so give me an idea in a, in a given week. How many different exhibits are you doing? How many different you know, installations are you doing? Mm-hmm. And how crazy do some of those installations get? They seem to get crazier and crazier as, as we go along. Um, we have, we're a mid-sized museum, so we have four uh, gallery spaces down in our first floor and three large galleries upstairs. So uh, what's on view right now, we have three different exhibitions, and that seems to be the pace that we're working on. They run for about six months. You know, my definition of a great museum comes in like three parts. Part one is... I want it to be accessible to me, and to the extent that it can be interactive, uh, I want it to tell a story. And then third, and nobody ever gets this, I want it to have a sense of humor. (laughs) Really? Well, 
I think we kind of have a sense of humor at the Bass, and definitely accessibility in in many senses of the term is important to us. As I mentioned, because of our location, you could be a tourist coming on off the beach when it starts raining, or you could be an art collector wanting to learn about contemporary art. We have exhibitions that can work for you, and generally, um, they are interactive in some way. But if your tourist coming off the beach is raining, is there a uh, Bass Museum dress code? Well, you well. need to be wearing shoes and probably something <laughs> covering your body. Okay, but fine. We're pretty lenient. You know, we are on the beach. Well, no, if, you, if, if it's raining, I'm coming off the beach. I'm then performance art. <laughs> yes, you become part of the museum, and that, <laughs> that works too. Whatever happened to Peter? Oh, he's now part of the permanent installation. <laughs> yes, he's on view. In your time at the museum, what was the most challenging exhibit you did, and what was the funniest? Oh, the funny, the challenge, most challenging it and and fun. I mean, I'd say we have our Ugo Rondinone sculpture outside. It's a 39 foot plus uh, stacked rock, rock sculpture that's very colorful. And those rocks travel. That's to right us. on Collins. Yeah. yeah, they travel to us individually from Nevada. So it was kind of a, a humorous moment watching them, like charting them on Google Maps as they traveled along like a FedEx package. Uh, we had a great social media bit about that. But it was also really challenging because we had these many ton rocks that we then had to stack individually. Um, and did it, did to, it come with an instruction manual? They did, thankfully, and they would stand <laughs> hurricane force winds. So they, we weren't messing around when we installed it. Obviously, if you're going to put it on the beach on Collins, it better withstand hurricane yes, force winds. Yes, yes, yes. And do you work with the schools? We do, yeah. I mean, uh, Miami Beach has a lot of schools, and we were quite involved in leading the STEAM Plus program, uh, which takes place um, in Miami Beach public schools and is led by our education department, along with other cultural partners. And perhaps even more important for the long-term thinking, do you work with the hotels and the resorts? Because the real problem is to get people away from the resorts and the beach long enough to discover you. Of course, yeah, we're constantly in touch with, you know, the concierge associations and, and our colleagues at the different hotels because they really do help in bringing over people interested in art for tours and, and just recommending things to do in the area. And you're open seven days a week? We are open five days a week. We're closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. Okay. Do you do nighttime stuff too? We do, yes. Um, at least once a month, we have a late night, uh, currently the third Thursday, um, in alliance with other museums and cultural institutions on the beach. It's called the Cultural Crawl. So basically, there's wine involved. Yes. you can. I just thought I'd been much contemporary wine. Yes, contemporary wine. Well, maybe a, a couple years old, um, <laughs> as, long as, as well as beer and other fun beverages. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Growing up, literally, I would come down here with my parents, um, and uh, it was in those days. It was it was actually a dark hotel. Uh, it wasn't very well lit. Uh, the rooms were dark. Um, it was, but they had a, a huge footprint on the beach. They had a huge footprint with a pool. Um, and as a kid, it was it was great to just run around. Um, but I never really came down here for the food. Uh, in those days, food was chicken fingers and and cheeseburgers and grilled cheese sandwiches if you were a kid. Uh, the Fountain Blue has come a long way since then, and my next guest knows all about that because he's come a long way since then. 
he actually is from Los Angeles, but he's been actually in Miami for a long time. 16 years now, yes. Yeah, that's Thomas Connell, who's the, uh, I love the vice president of culinary. I'm the head cook. You're the chef, come <laughs> that's on. Right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> but I mean, I, I particularly am interested in, I mean, you, you opened the Ritz here in Miami on Lincoln. Correct. Right? But before that, you were in Barcelona. That's right. Right. Spoken like a true Catalan. Barcelona. That's it. Very good. Oh, yeah. But my question is, this. how many rooms in this hotel? Uh, just under 1,600. All right. So how many kitchens? Uh, we have 14 kitchens, nine restaurants altogether. Yeah, you are vice president of the culinary. <laughs> yeah, it's a big property. <laughs> no, it is. So in any given day, you're doing almost 4,000 meals. And that's correct. Yeah, we're surplus of tw- uh, 2.3 million meals a year in the property. And that, inc- and, that and that's also F&B for the ballroom, for the parties, for the... For the Correct. over-the-top bar mitzvahs, things like that. Correct. As uh, Mr. Goldfarb says, our COO, anything you put in your mouth is my responsibility. Okay. That's a line I would not touch. Uh, but moving right along, my question is, with that many meals, right, and that many parties, what's the most challenging party you've had to cater hmm. and cook for with the most outrageous demands? Well, you know, you get a lot of every event. Every event is special because the individuals. It's a one-time event. You get right. bar mitzvahs, weddings, things like that. Um, we did have a bar mitzvah quite some time ago. That um, you know, they're turning the ballroom into a carousel with live horses going around in circles. All the food is themed to that. You know, when you're when the food is a portion of the event, that becomes challenging because there's so much into the overall image of everything, and it's not just about the food as much as I would like it to be that way. It's, um, a, it's, it's an energy. It's an entertainment, and it's a piece of it. So you need to mesh with that, and that really is the, the the key. And also to make sure that all of these events, that everybody that comes to them, that they feel like they are the only people that are eating today in the world. And that's really how you make someone feel special, is you really lock in on what their desires are, what the effect is, what the overall impression they want to give to their guests is, embrace that, and deliver that to the best of your abilities. Of course, your other big challenge is purchasing, because you got to be able to anticipate Somebody wants horses. Yeah, to- well, <laughs> I'm not buying the horses, that's for sure. But No, but you're wrangling them. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and we have a, a great team. I mean, the, the, the beauty of this, you know, if you look at the grandeur of the operation, it truly is a lot. Um, but I bring people through, and I say it over and over again, this is, this is a, a business of love and passion. It's as simple as that. And like anything else, when you love something, it becomes easy. And it, it doesn't take as much effort, and it just comes to you. Um, as a chef, my job is to make every cook, everybody that touches a piece of food, everybody that orders it, everybody that's involved in it, my job is to get them to love what they're doing and be completely engaged in what they're doing. If I do that, that's why everybody's mother is the best cook, because she loved you. And I say that all the time to cooks. My mother loved me, and she was a terrible cook. She might be, but she cooked with all the love I, in the world for I you. I have two words for you. Okay. Lima beans. All right? I, I say no more. Yeah, you're hurting me, too, there, because I got that same thing from my mother. But those lima beans never came to me with more love than anybody else's lime. Any and those lima, lima beans, beans never came to me with more guilt. <laughs> true. That's true, too. That and Brussels sprouts when you were young. Brussels Although sprouts today, have rebounded. Wait a second. Yeah, yeah. Brussels sprouts, you couldn't pay me to eat when I was a kid. Now, if they're yeah. done right, yeah. I'm there. Yeah, just don't deep fry them. How do you make them? Oh, I, I peel the leaves and saute them lightly with a little bit of butter, a little bit of stock, salt and pepper. Done. No, yeah, o- this, no, no olive oil, no vinegar. Uh, you can mix them. A little bit of oil with no vinegar. No, no. vinegar kills uh, chlorophyll and it gives it kind of a musty taste, if you will. So never chlorophyll, never acid with green vegetables. Okay. Never. So, yeah. See, it's the uh, enemy of chlorophyll. Have we learned something today, everybody? Yes, we, yes, have. we have. Yes, we have. <laughs> alkaline does help, though. Interestingly enough, if you put a little alkaline into the water that you're going to blanch your asparagus or broccoli in, it actually is more vibrant. 
I, and I insist on vibrant asparagus. Yes, so you should. I, 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 I do. Everybody I should. Absolutely. You deserve it. What's the one thing you put on the menu that you were completely determined was going to be your star seller, and it completely tanked? You know, that's interesting. That's probably one of the hardest questions I've been asked, to be very honest, and I did have to think about it. There's so many analytics that go into what we do, and as a chef, I'm supposed to cook for my customers and to understand what the base is. Uh, but but you every do once have in a while, you have an idea. Exactly. Yes. So uh, I made a foie gras quiche with a duck confit and a little bit of citrus. And to me, I thought that that quiche with the foie gras was unbelievable. And the warm confit duck on top and the little citrus salad. I mean, you ate that. You're you pain, had the you're textures. Pain, you're painting a lovely picture. You had the textures. You had the richness. You had the flavor. You had the sharpness from the acid. It was balanced. It was perfect. I loved it. Whack. It tanked. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, listen, that goes in my bank. I'll pull that out and I'll have it for myself here once in a while. But it, it did not work at all. So if you really want to suck up to the chef, mm-hmm. order that. There you go. Okay. That's right. Okay. That's right? right. Absolutely. Okay. Now, what was the one item you put on that surprised the you-know-what out of you because people said they loved it? So that was actually here in La Cote. It's our Mediterranean restaurant outside. And we were talking about dishes that would work with the Mediterranean. Jeffrey Sofer, the owner of the property, is a, a big fan of the Mediterranean. A lot of the inspiration for the resort comes from that. And so just coming from Barcelona recently, too, uh, we did a, a play on uh, Gambas Alajillo, which is garlic shrimp in Catalan. And we do a, tang- a tagine. So we take a tagine and olive oil, sliced garlic, uh, little onion, some artichokes, prawns, uh, some potato, paprika, lemon segments. And we just cook that in the oil. And then we put the tagine top, let it kind of steam, finish, carry over, take it to the table, drop it to the table, lift the lid, grilled bread with that, etc. It's basically like a peasant dish, very simple, but obviously with great ingredients. Not with when peasant pricing. that thing hit the table, <laughs> well, the ingredients aren't for sure, I, not, I, of, course. of course. But when that thing hits the table, people go nuts. It stops conversation, and that's something that I say is your job as a chef, you have to talk through your food. If you can interrupt a conversation when your food hits the table, you did your job. That's why chefs like to watch and see what's going on there. Because if you put the food down, people just carry on nothing happened but when that plate hits the table it's and the, everybody says whoa what is that yeah. and you pull the lid and the, all the senses are enlivened that does it and that one becomes now a staple on the menu out there which is amazing now call me silly but with enough you know garlic and olive oil i'll eat cardboard well it's a balance of course yeah. you don't want it just well, to you have to have the right amount of cardboard you have to have the right amount of cardboard. yes yeah. we do um, but of course, everything was with balance. You know, I've yeah. gone, listen, to your point though, I've gone to Spanish restaurants here in the States and it was horrible because it was garlic over to, overload. Yeah. There are people that don't respect garlic. They don't know how to use it properly. Um, it is a mouth bully. You should actually have an asterisk on the menu saying, please respect your garlic. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It is a mouth bully. Yeah. And uh, too much of it will knock around the other flavors and beat up your palate. And so it's not appropriate. You have to do it in moderation. Now, let's talk about sourcing. Okay. Because 16 years ago when you came to Miami... I mean, even though you're an international gateway city, you couldn't get everything. Mm-hmm. Now you get everything. That's right. Right? Is there something you can't get sourced? Um, no. I mean, you know, anything that's not legal, obviously. No, but I'm talking about in, that, terms, yeah. in terms of, you know, there's a, I'll tell you a funny story. I was at the Aspen Food and Wine Festival a couple of years ago, and there was a group that was exhibiting there called iGourmet. There's a website. iGourmet, one word, okay. iGourmet.com. And they said, we can source anything for you and deliver it to you within 48 hours. Wait. So three days later, I'm in Milan. And I go to this little store. And there they had the creamiest, stinkiest gorgonzola. Mm-hmm. And I knew I, you couldn't take this back on the plane. You'd be thrown off the plane. Mm-hmm. Right? But I, had, I loved it. I photographed the label. Okay. Two days after that, 
I'm in Amsterdam, and there's Gouda with black truffles. Smoked Gouda with black Photograph the label. And I went online, and they said, what do you want? And I, I, I sent them a picture. I said, I want, and I'm back in New York. I live on an island, mm-hmm. accessible only by boat, right? Mm-hmm. And two days later, I'm on my boat, and I get a radio call from a ferry captain saying, where are you? I said, what is it? I got a box here for you with dry ice. They did it. Yeah. They did it. So the point is, you can source yeah. Everything. Yeah. Everything for us has to do with volumes, though. I've had a couple of situations in Barcelona for New Year's Eve once. I put Rouget on the menu and we were going to serve 500 people Rouget. And I got all the promises in the world from the fishermen that they would have the fresh Rouget I needed for that. And I'm only doing half little fillet per person. So it's 250 fish. And uh, we came to about a week ahead of time and we were so close to not getting it. And they had to send out extra boats to go fish it. It was a nightmare to get that. But we finally did. So basically, there's there's no more fish left. Well, no, there's, well, yeah, that was a while ago. I'm sure they're, they're back now, but. Roger shortage caused by chef. That's right. Yeah. Um, point being, you know, it, it all is supply and demand. Nobody right. can manipulate Mother Nature, nor should they. So, you know, you talk about John Dory and people say, okay, I'm going to put John Dory on an event menu, or I'm going to put him even on a restaurant menu. Well, John Dory is such a seldom fished product, and it's so rare out there that if you get it, use it as a special, but don't put it out there that you're going to have it. Because you can't it. depend on it. Exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, you're sourcing and you know also what nature is going to give you. And we don't want to, like I said, manipulate that because that just becomes unnatural. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.